editor at The Economist and who contributed to the new nationalism issue and his latest book is Blood, Dreams and Gold, The Changing Face of Burma. Daphne Halikiopoulou is Associate Professor of Politics in the, at the University of Reading, co-author of Golden Dawn's Nationalist Solution, explaining the rise of the far-right in Greece. She's also an editor of the journal Nations and Nationalism. And Eric Kaufman is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck in the University of London, author of The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, Decline of the Dominant Ethnicity in the United States, also of Changing Places, The White British Response to Ethnic Change. And he is also an editor of Nations and Nationalism. I have um, been encouraged, to, and he's about, he's about to start writing a book for Penguin on the subject, but he can say more about that. I also want to encourage you to, um, if you wish, there's some flyers here for the Association for the Study of Ethnicity, Ethnicity and Nationalism, uh, which seems to be a very good value per year for students in particular. So uh, feel free to take a flyer at the end. And more than that, I'm just going to ask the three speakers, um, Richard, then Daphne, then Eric. Is that the order we're going in, I think? Yeah, yeah. speak for about 10 minutes, quarter an hour. I'll begin to look agitated. Quarter That's about 14 minutes. <laughs> and I want the audience to join with me to constrain <laughs> the speakers to about 15, so we have plenty of time for questions and debate at the end. So, Richard, would you like to begin? Thank you very much. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to stand up. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, thank you. Uh, a fantastic turnout. It's good to see you all. I, I, and, you know, there could be no more appropriate day, I guess, in recent history probably than to, to have this talk as the world is in turmoil about um, Donald Trump's um, various travel bans, etc. And this kind of been a primal expression of what we're talking about this evening, um, the new nationalism. And um, as Tony said, um, I was one of the uh, contributors to this um, economist history, the new nationalism. And on the front cover there, you have... This was just after Trump um, had been elected. You have um, uh, Donald Trump... Uh, <clears throat> Vladimir Putin, and then just behind the drummer boy, Nigel Farage. And then in the back, you can just see um, <clears throat> Marine Le Pen um, <laughs> waving a French flag at the back uh, with a revolution. So it's very much along the lines of um, b before any of this began, way back in, I don't know, March or something, May uh, last year, um, the American writer and commentator said that... Um, we were three votes away from the end of the West, <clears throat> and by that she meant um, the, the UK vote on Brexit, the referendum, uh, the American election, and the French presidential election um, in the spring. So it's two down, three to go. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, two down, one to go out of the three. Um, so um, we, 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 we do live, as, as, as Tony said, in extraordinary times, because I don't think anyone would have put any money on even getting two two out of those three votes, let alone um, three out of three, which is a real possibility. So I just want to describe a little bit about uh, how we define this new nationalism, how we try to define it, uh, where you can find it. And then I want to um, do, go a little bit into history. I'm a historian by, by, by trade and used to teach here, in fact, history and government, and, um, and go to back a little bit to the roots of our present discontent. And, uh, and that, I think, 
think will help us hopefully to um, understand a little bit of what's going on and also perhaps understand a little bit of how we can mitigate the consequences of this naturalism and perhaps further rounds of it in the future because as I will argue this is not a new phenomenon. So first of all what do we mean by the new naturalism? Well I think um, broadly speaking it's um, we call, uh, we use the term civic nationalism, um, which is basically societies organised around um, beliefs in values. So, most commonly, they would be democracy, rule of law, a, le- a, a kind of lexicon of, of, of human rights, political rights, civic rights, etc., about which everybody um, um, can agree on, and that will encompass many peoples, uh, many ethnic groups, many religions, etc., etc. And it's a shift, basically, from that sort of civic nationalism to what we would call um, ethnic nationalism, um, which is a shorthand for what uh, is basically a politics which is don't do- dominated by uh, the demands of ethnicity. And I think there's no doubt that in the past couple of years you've seen a rise of that um, around the world and this issue was an attempt to sort of knit together this phenomenon around the world. And to take as the most important examples Trump, um, which we'll come back to a lot this evening I'm sure in the USA, Uh, Modi um, in India uh, the BJP, Hindu nationalism um, in India Um, nearer to home, Britain and UKIP and I think it's important here uh, as a subject to to, to distinguish UKIP perhaps from the rest of the Brexit campaigners as as I see it the Brexit vote was very much divided into two free the the more uh, liberal free marketeering wing the Michael Goes, the Boris Johnson's and the, the UKIP wing, uh, which was very much about the ethnic nationalism which we're talking about. France, Marie Le Pen, uh, uh, a decades-long history now of ethnic nationalism um, in France. Uh, Russia, Putin, but then look, you, you can look around Europe and you can see the same, same phenomenon at work in Eastern Europe, countries like Hungary and Poland, which were most resistant, for instance, to the influx of immigrants from North Africa last year, um, and also um, the rising of this in, in, to a certain extent in Germany and also Holland a previously liberal Holland of course now with uh, Gert Wilders uh, one of the most um, uh, outspoken uh, ethno-nationalist politicians in Europe today and um, if you think that these are sort of isolated incidents, what have they all got in common um, I would direct you to their first summit of the far right the ethno-nationalists which took place um, just last week where most of the European characters in this movement came together for a joint celebration of their um, values under the banner of the new patriotism is what they called it so they were now redefining politics around what they call patriotism and I think what we'd call uh, new nationalism now just briefly why has this come about I think there are two immediate factors Um, first of all there's no doubt that politicians and leaders have um, encouraged and to a certain extent constructed this new nationalism um, for their own political ends. This is as old as the political playbook, that basically you play the patriotic card, you play the nationalist card uh, in order to rally a certain, con- a certain constituency to your side. This has been very obvious um, with the politics of, um, of, of Vladimir Putin in Russia and it's now very obvious with the politics of Donald Trump in the USA and that's probably mostly why they admire each other so much. I would argue 
argue, because basically their political playbook is very similar. They benefit from exploiting the same political trends. However, um, some people would say that you know, this argues for the contingency of new nationalism, that maybe it's just a social construct. To a degree, I think that's probably true, but it would be a dangerous um, illusion uh, to pretend that this was entirely true. No. I think this arouses genuine feelings of place, of identity, of ethnicity, which I think the liberal elite uh, us included, um, have overlooked, and we overlooked at our peril. It's something that we missed, um, I'm afraid, and that other publications in our little liberal bubbles uh, missed as well. So I declare uh, mea culpa. Um, we are you know, amongst uh, others who missed it. And we never took it particularly seriously because, of course, these values uh, can be very, very different. And, you know, it's, um, I, if you want to understand perhaps the Brexit vote, what I, uh, what I sort of argue about, the sense of place, the sense of belonging, the sense of country, um, I would direct you, for instance, to the poetry of Philip Larkin as much as else, the, 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 the great conservative poet of post-war Britain. Who, who wrote very movingly about the sense of place, about the, the sense of people left behind by cosmopolitan London elites, middle classes, etc., in places like Hull, for instance, where he lived. Hull, a very good example, it scored the largest Brexit vote in Britain after Sunderland and Newcastle. And I would direct you to the poetry of Philip Larkin to understand why. So, um, having said that, I, want to, I think it's instructive to go back in time to understand why this all happened. And um, I, I think the author, which is, which, uh, is, is now entirely forgotten, who first analysed all this, was an English academic um, called J.S. Furnival. Um, and he coined the term plural society for the first time in 1947, which is what we're now all arguing about. Is a plural society possible? Um, where does it come from? And he was a, um, he was a colonial administrator and academic in Burma, uh, in colonial Burma in the 1930s and 1940s. And he was the first person to identify what we would term as a plural society, i.e. a society which tries to transcend nationalism um, for other values. And it was basically a concept of colonialism. And, and I think interestingly and pertinently, he was devising, he was, uh, devising his concept of a plural society as exactly the same time as um, uh, Karl Popper in New Zealand, down the road in Asia, was uh, devising his, his concept of the open society. And just as Popper wrote his great uh, masterwork, The uh, um, uh, the Open Society of Enemies in 1947, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. J.S. Furnival wrote his great work, on it in, on, which was published in exactly the same year, which was called Colonial Policy and Practice, now completely overlooked, which I, was import, but I would argue is in retrospect is just as important as Popper's work. And here is how Furnival defines the plural society. Um, and this is when he's describing Rangoon, as it then was, now Yangon, or um, uh, what, is, what is now the capital of um, Indonesia, or any of the other, Jakarta, or any of the other of the great colonial trading cities of the 19th and 20th century. So he says, 
Um, in the strictest sense, yes, in Burma as in Java, probably the first thing that strikes the visitor, and you'll see this today, is the medley of people, European, Chinese, Indian, and native. It is in the strictest sense a medley, for they mix but do not combine. Each group holds by its own religion, its own culture and language, its own ideas and ways. As individuals, they meet, but only in the marketplace, in buying and selling. There is a plural society, with different sections of the community living side by side, but separately within the same political unit. Even in the economic sphere, there is a division of labour along racial lines. Natives, what he... Uh, current the, the contemporary term for Burmese uh, natives, Chinese, Indians and Europeans all have different functions and within each major group subsections have particular occupations so that's really in plural society and what he basically meant, he meant it pejoratively um, so the plural society which we understand as a term of lots of different peoples happily mixing he meant pejoratively and his criticism was that the plural society occurred when mass immigration um, came in and shoved aside the dominant indigenous peoples who would not share in the values of the immigrant peoples. And, and in those days, the immigrants basically were all about commerce and trade, and the natives, as he called them, the indigenous peoples, the Burmese, were basically agricultural um, feudal farmers. The two did not mix. The Burmese felt thoroughly resentful of that they being pushed aside by um, the plural society. And the consequences of that is when it came to um, uprisings against colonialism, anti-colonialism, around the entire world, not just in Burma, in India, in, in Burma, in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Vietnam, particularly in Africa, in East Africa, where the British brought in large numbers of um, Indians, Gujaratis particularly in their way. So you had this dual reaction against colonialism and against the plural society. And the consequence of that was what I would call um, you know, intense ethno-nationalism. Um, and that's really what we have today. And as I see it today, what we have today is the same thing happening in reverse to Western societies that happened to uh, the societies that we imposed the plural societies on in colonial times with the same consequences. And you can observe, I think, again, two particular phenomenon that made the plural societies so damaging to those societies, which are still grappling with the consequences of it today. The first one, I think, was the, um, was the lack of control. They, in those days, talked about control, that they had the Burmese, for instance, had no control over immigration, just as the whole uh, rhetoric of the Brexit campaign as give us back control. We want control of our borders, exactly what the Burmese nationalists wanted in the 1940s, back from the British colonialists, um, control of their own borders. And so they had no say in the influx of immigrants to their own country, and so they had no control, no say, no consultation in the consequences of that for, which, for their own societies, which was extremely damaging, which is exactly the same argument that Farage and Trump, etc., use today. And the second phenomenon you could observe is speed of change, that all this happened incredibly quickly in very, in very limited places. In Burma, it happened really essentially in a couple of port towns where 
the trading commercial societies were at their most intense. Um, Rangoon, as it then was, Sitwe Nawakyab, um, and various other cases, um, ports down the littoral. But you can observe the same thing in all those ports around Southeast Asia and Africa. Um, where the plural society um, was present. And again, you can observe the same thing in Brexit Britain. We did a map, uh, uh, an interactive map, um, just after the Brexit vote. Everyone did their maps to plot, you know, how to explain Brexit. But one of the most uh, telling indicators of a place that voted Brexit was not the presence of immigration, East European or, any, or from anywhere else. It was the speed with which the ethnic profile of the town, it was usually a town or city, had changed. So it was not only the lack of control that people felt about immigration, but also about the speed with which, with which it happens. And I think the... So you know, the, the lesson, I think, from the plural society originally was, um, you know, the consequences of the way it was done leads to ethnic nationalism. And the trouble is that I think here in the West, particularly in Britain and America, we never paid very much regard to the consequences of um, immigration, uh, just as uh, the colonial masters... Britain, the French, the Dutch, etc., in the 20th century, the 19th century, paid very little to regard to the consequences of their own encouragement of immigration to their uh, captive countries, whether it be, as I say, Malaysia, Thailand, Korea, or wherever it may be. So I think today um, we, we are grappling with this, I think, just as all those countries have had to grapple with consequences of the rise of ethno-nationalism in Southeast Asia, Africa, and, and, and other places. So I think it's, I would argue that it's probably to Southeast Asia and Africa are good places to look of how to combat the rise of nationalism and how to manage societies with strong incidences of um, ethnic conflict. That doesn't have to be a violent ethnic conflict, but where ethnicity is undoubtedly an issue, as it has become here, if those societies are not to retreat into the bunker of nationalism, of new nationalism, as we define it today. So I'll stop there and let you get on. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, and uh, I'd like to thank the, uh, the Institute of Public Affairs and the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism, which I hope you'll check out, uh, and which I'm a, a vice president of, and which has existed for 25 years here at this institution. Uh, so yes, a long history. I'm going to be talking mainly uh, about the rise of the populist right in Western Europe and in North America, and I'm going to give a kind of quite unvarnished view of things, because I do think that there's a pretty strong case case to be made that it really is not the economy stupid, that it is about, uh, as actually as picking up on what Richard said, uh, demographic shifts and values, culture is really key to this story. Now, some of you may have seen the movie Moneyball starring Brad Pitt, uh, and of course Pitt's character really is a, a baseball scout who really 
turns his back on the gut instincts of his, uh, sorry, he's, base, he's the owner of the Oakland A's and he turns his back on the gut instincts of his baseball scouts and says, I'm going to rely on mundane data such as on-base percentage and just look at the data and that's kind of what I want to do here and when I say data, I don't just mean quantitative data. You can do this equally well with interviews, equally well with historical documents. I'm going to do it more with surveys. That's fine. Um, so we want to say, what does the data tell us about this phenomenon of the rise of the populist right. I'm going to look quite a bit at Brexit and Trump, but I'm also going to take in the wider European panorama. Okay, now, um, the first thing I want to say is that I think there are different things going on to a large degree in the West, that is Western Europe, North America, as compared to Southern Europe, Eastern Europe. So, for example, if you look at this, this is the latest Eurobarometer poll asking, what is the most, most important issue in your country? And this is immigration and this is terrorism. If you look down this list at those that are in dark green, which is where it was most frequently mentioned, these are all West European countries, Belgium, Denmark, Germany. Um, Malta's an exception for a very good reason, Austria. Um, Sweden. So these are all West European countries and similarly for terrorism it's France, Belgium, Germany. The issue for the West and, and Western right-wing populism is around immigration and who are we. And when I say who are we, uh, it's, a, it's a question of not just the nation-state but the ethnic majority which is not the same thing as the nation-state. Ethnic groups are about uh, communities that believe themselves to be of shared ancestry. Nation-states defined more on the grounds of terror territory political aspiration. So Southern and Eastern Europe, the right-wing populism there I think is more to do with issues of trying to recover national pride or wanting to go back to some pre-democratic uh, ideal. And so I think there are different questions. But in the West, it's primarily about immigration and cultural change is my argument. And just to sort of, uh, anyone who wants to, to, to answer the question about the rise of right-wing populism, I think has to address two things. Uh, the first is, it, why is it the populist right and not the populist left? I mean, if it's just about distrust of elites or the economy, why not the populist left? That would make more sense, certainly, if it was an economic issue. Secondly, why increase support for the right, uh, the populist right after the migrant crisis and not after the economic crisis. And I think I'm going to try and make the case that the economic crisis really did not uh, lead to the big upsurge in right-wing populism that the migrant crisis did. And so I'm going to talk first about the issue of numbers and migration and then talk a bit about cultural values and then try and bring it together. And then in the last slide, what can we do about it? Okay, so numbers. Now, there's a lot on a lot of these charts I'll be showing you. That, that I'm sure the presentations are available. You can, I can always send you them. But essentially, this is the Ipsos Mori uh, Issues Index. And this uh, line in blue is those saying that immigration is their number one concern starting in the 90s. And we can see the uptick beginning in the late Blair... Or the, the Blair years, about 1999, starts to rise to a peak, goes down a bit, it goes back up a bit. It's, this cuts off in 2012. And this is net migration in the hundreds of thousands in red. Now, if you take the smooth curves of those two, it's about a 70-80% correlation. So the point about this, and, you've, and you can do it with um, concerns that have been raised to, to MPs in their, in their mail, which shows a similar curve. So that's telling us really that numbers really do matter, that actual immigrant numbers are related to the salience of immigration in politics. And that salience is actually highly related also to support for UKIP, for the populist right. 
Let's look at this now in a different way uh, in the European continent with the migrant crisis. This is in late 2015. The East Mediterranean route essentially took migrants from Syria and elsewhere up into Germany, Scandinavia, Netherlands, and so forth. And what you see is the regions such as Bavaria that, that are most concerned about immigration, where over 50% say it's the most important issue, are the immigrant receiving regions those areas that got the most immigrants. So it's not to say there's a one-to-one -one correlation between numbers and concern, but there is a correlation. And that's sometimes elided in the literature, which suggests that it's all about political entrepreneurship and creating panics. That's important, but the numbers are also important. And we need to, um, we need to be realistic about that. The other, another point with regard to numbers is that Concern over immigration is not um, correlated with concern about the economy. And this is again from the Eurobarometer. And what, what we can see here are from 2007 pre-economic crisis to 2016. And if you look at, for example, concern over unemployment in red here, or uh, the economy in blue, they both kind of spike up with that economic crisis in, in 08. So we see this big jump. Immigration in gray sags down here. It's not related to that increased concern over unemployment and the economy. Fast forward over here to the migrant crisis and we see something different. We see that gray line, concern over immigration spiking up while unemployment and the economic uh, situation are going down. So the point there is, that these things are not, either they're not related or they're inversely related. And we don't, and in fact, uh, Ian Preston uh, at UCL has done a study looking at the effect of the economic crisis on immigration attitudes, and it's effectively zero. So we don't see a connection between the economic situation and immigration opinion. And a literature review done by Hain Mueller and Hopkins finds something similar. Uh, they did a meta-analysis of a whole series of studies, and again, personal economic situation not related to views on immigration in any significant way. So what is it then that's driving uh, immigration attitudes? The other question we have is, and, and all the literature shows that immigration concerns are highly linked to votes for the populist right. This is a slide I'm, I'm indebted to Matt Goodwin for providing uh, in, from November 2015, looking at a series of continental European countries. Uh, the vote share for the leading far-right party in the last election prior to November 2015, the current polling, and this is the change. And in almost all situations, except for Finland, the true Finns who are in an unpopular coalition, but in all the other cases, we see a substantial rise in support for the populist right across Europe post-migration crisis. Roland Kopp at UCL has done a more in-depth look at the AFD. And here, this is quite interesting. You can see um, the, uh, these are monthly refugee reg uh, registrations in Germany. And you can see this big spike, which is corresponding to that migration crisis. Uh, and this is the AFD poll average. Now, what happened was the AFD, which was not an anti-immigrant party, had a change of leadership. And Petri came in here and started to uh, play up this issue. And the combination of that migrant crisis plus that shift in leadership led to a substantial jump in the AFD polling numbers. So I think we can say that numbers pretty safely uh, are very much uh, important in this story. Now, we talk about Donald Trump. 
again, I would say we have to also look at this question of uh, immigration and the numbers. Again, numbers are not everything. Demography isn't destiny. Many other things intervene. But some people have written as if this does not matter. And I think we would be kidding ourselves if we pretended that was the case. So what we can see is the proportion foreign born in the US population. And this is 1900 to 1920, um, which was around sort of 13 and 14%. Now, that was a period of intense anti-immigration politics, as anyone who knows American history knows the American Protective Association. Immigration Restriction League, Ku Klux Klan revival, all of that was happening at a very large scale until you got the very restrictive 1924 Johnson-Reed Act, which essentially cut off immigration to a large extent from Southern and Eastern Europe. And that then led to this big drop in proportion foreign-born until 1965, when the immigration reforms kicked in. And then you've seen the numbers go back up to, it's now 13.3% or something, about 13%. So it's now back up to where we were in this period when we had a lot of anti-immigration agitation. So actually, the question we should be asking is why, you know, might be, well, why weren't we seeing um, this kind of opposition here in the 2000s? There are some reasons for that. But the question almost has to be rephrased as why were we not seeing similar things? Similarly, in Europe, proportion foreign-born, again, historic, in terms of especially non-European population, unprecedented for the last uh, 100, 200 years. The interwar period, we didn't see anything like the share of foreign-born in European countries. Okay. Um, right, so Richard was talking a bit about local ethnic changes, and I think you can do a pretty good comparison of Britain and the United States on this, and this is some data from two surveys that I ran, uh, YouGov surveys, in late August. Um, and this one looks at um, propensity to... Let me just check that out. Yeah, propensity to have voted Brexit uh, and the proportionate increase in non-white British people in your ward of residence. So where there was no increase in um, minorities, the, from this data, it's only about 40% likelihood of voting for, for leave. Very high proportion increase in, in minorities, thinking of Barking and Dagenham or Boston and Lincolnshire, places like that, it's up to over a 60% chance. Likewise, in terms of probability of rating Donald Trump a 10 out of 10, so this is before he became president, uh, that goes up with the increase in Latino population in your zip code. So the higher that increase, the greater the support for Trump. And we, there are a number of towns in the U.S., places like Arcadia, Wisconsin, or places like Farmers Branch, Texas, which had these rapid ethnic shifts, and reporters went in and they found this tremendous support for, for Trump. Again, that's linked to this rapid ethnic shifting going on. So again, this is all to re-emphasize the point that numbers really do matter. Okay, so they do matter. They're not the whole story, but they do matter. Okay, um, but they're not. Again, I said they're not the whole story. So there is a base um, based on values, which accounts, I would argue, also for a lot of what's going on. And I want to contrast this to income, because I really think the value story is the much bigger story than economics and income. So this is support for Trump, 0 to 10 scale, 0 being hate him, 10 being really love him. Um, and you can see this question here, which is a classic psychology question designed to measure something called authoritarianism. The question is, is it more important for a child to be A, considerate, or B, well-behaved? 
Okay, seems like the same thing, but actually it's a very important distinction. People's answer to that question is much, much more important in determining or, or correlating with whether they voted Brexit or for Trump than uh, family income from lowest to highest. So, for example, those who said it's more important for a child to be well-behaved uh, are over 5 out of 10 on the Trump-like scale, and those who say important for a child to be considered are closer to a 3. It's a 2-point gap, uh, whereas... The poorest and the richest only differ by a half a point, and it's not statistically significant. And in any case, it's the wealthier, uh, these, are, these are just white Americans, it's the wealthier white Americans who are more likely to support Trump than the poor white Americans. So this talk about poor whites, I think we really have to sort of question it. It's a nice story, but it doesn't really hold up in the data at all. I'm, I'm going to make that claim. Now, this again, this is support for Trump on a 0 to 10 scale. It's not did you vote for Trump in the election? You might have hated Trump, held your nose, and voted for him. So what, what I'm really getting at is support for Trump and his ideas. Likewise, Brexit, the chance that you uh, voted Brexit is much higher if you answered uh, it's important for a child to be well-behaved than considerate. Big gap, 20-something points. Income, hardly anything. Again, not significant, similar to the Trump results. So again, I would make the case that it's really about values and not uh, about income, although I would allow that in the it's other surveys have shown that in the Brexit case, income does play some role. So I do think that there is some case to be made for Brexit income playing a small role, not as big a role as values, but a small role. Okay. Uh, last couple of slides. Well, you can look at these two slides and they're almost carbon copies of each other. The question, should sex criminals be publicly whipped? Um, those who strongly disagree are not likely to support Brexit and they're not likely to support Trump. And what's amazing is this, even the step-ups look exactly the same in these two. So again, values rather than income. You put them together, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to come to a finish, but... The question, do you favor or oppose Syrian refugees coming to the U.S.? There is no better question for teasing out and polarizing support for or against Trump than the Syrian refugees question. This goes all the way back to January 2016. Those who really oppose uh, Syrian refugees, really big on Trump. 65 out of 100, those who uh, are in favor, give them a zero. Um, Okay, last, very last slide. I won't be able to read through this, but the point is, what do we do? And it's a cultural issue and not an economic one, so we need a cultural solution. My argument is, if you, sorry, um, is we need to start to address the concerns of white conservative voters. Uh, in, in, and the question is not, what does it mean to be British in an age of migration, but what does it mean to be white British in an age of migration? And here... Uh, a story which works for certainly UKIP voters in this survey experiment I did, we showed them this passage, which I won't have time to talk you through, but it's essentially saying that even though we've had a lot of immigration, more or less, they're, they're already assimilating and intermarrying, and they're not likely, things are not likely to change very much. And that message for conservative voters that, yes, there's immigration, but we're not going to get a lot of change, is actually a very effective message and substantially reduce the support for hard Brexit in this survey experiment. So I would suggest a new way of addressing white conservative voters, messaging differently for white conservatives as for white liberals, which is not currently being done. So anyway... With that, I will hand it over to Daphne. Four minutes. I'll let you in four minutes. Okay, very good. Very good. Thank you. 
Did you see our chart, the Brexit one? Talk about the mapping of the um, speed of change, and I'll, I'll send it. Did you see it? I'll, I'll send it. I'll send it. I'll send it. Because, because it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of comments. It was, a, it was the sort of best one we did on it. Okay. All right. Order. Order. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm glad I'm doing this right after Eric, because I've got a sort of different. Um, argument to put forward to you. So just, just before I start to just say, so my work is on the far right, as I prefer to call it, in Europe, so I will be focusing on that rather than Trump and Brexit. But so what, what we heard already is Trump, Brexit and the European far right, they have something important in common. They're very different phenomena in a way. Some are extreme or radical variants. They have something in common and that is that they share their very strong anti-immigration positions. They try to mobilize on anti-immigration and put forward a so-called national preference, which is the attempt to put forward the natives, whatever they may be, um, as first for, say, welfare access or any other policy area. And hence, as I understand it, is the new nationalism. So we're here today to ask why. Why is this new nationalism on the rise? And I'm going to argue today that it's the new nationalism is really neither new nor nationalism related, at least not with regards to the drivers of its support. And I'm going to do this by putting forward three arguments, uh, or a threefold argument if you like. The first is a, an economic argument, so I'm going to argue, um, 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 put, put forward an argument with regards to economic insecurity. Second, I'm going to put forward a political argument, and this argument is with regard to state capacity and the belief um, of citizens in the ability of the state to deliver on its social contract obligations. And third, you're going to tell me why are you here talking about nationalism. Well, um, I'm going to put forward an instrumentalist argument where I'm going to discuss nationalism as a strategy, as a rhetorical tool that these parties and groups are using to become more appealing and to actually um, make themselves appear legitimate in a much broader um, section of the population than the old uh, parties, fascist parties of the past um, did. So... If we start with the nationalism thesis, we say, so this is the new nationalism, immigration, national preference. What is the argument? Well, as I understand it, the argument, the nationalism and, and sort of ethnic cultural backlash thesis has two dimensions. The first dimension is the so-called ethnic competition. So this argument would be sort of Eric's first of the immigration point, right? It would be that uh, particular um, ethnic groups fear the immigrants pose a threat to their cultural identity. So they would oppose immigration because, say, they see a perceived incompatibility with some cultures. They, they fear that, that particular religious groups or particular ethnic groups will, um, will erode their national identity. Um, and they also see some groups as supposedly unable to assimilate. So, so it's, it's not us, it's them. They can't assimilate to, to our culture. Hence strong anti-immigration attitudes. The second dimension of, of this thesis is broader, and it's really about a value consensus. And this is, again, Eric's second point, I suppose, about the values, the authoritarian attitudes, the conservative attitudes in favor of death penalty, etc. And this is the Norris and Inglehart point, for example. They say that all this that, that we're witnessing is actually a backlash against 
progressive cultural change. So it is really social, particular social groups that are resisting um, fast, and, and, and Richard spoke about fast as well, they're resisting fast change. Now what I want to do is refute both, or, or rather refute the first uh, dimension and incorporate the second into my argument. So what is wrong, what, what, what do I think is problematic with this thesis? Well first, there isn't always a correlation between immigration levels and far-right party support. And, you know, we, we heard that possibly um, it's the migration crisis rather than the economic crisis that fueled it. However, if we look at Greece, for example, which is uh, where I come from, um, the Golden Dawn uh, arose in 2012 at a time of severe economic crisis and has not experienced any increase since the severity of the migration crisis that Greece has been experiencing. If we also look at Spain, uh, has very high immigration levels, but no uh, far-right party support. In fact, extremely little uh, far-right party support. Secondly, the cultural indicators that, that, that we hear, I'm not sure that they are really cultural. So, for example, we measure anti-immigration attitudes. But anti-immigration attitudes are not necessarily something ethnic. They can be linked with labour market outcomes, for example, jobs and wages. If we look at far-right parties, they all tend to link with the, with the, with the welfare issue. They all say that immigrants are a threat to the collective resources of the state, to the collective goods of the state, to pensions, to welfare provision, to public services. Um, in addition, if we see indicators such as mistrust of global and national government, again, I'm not sure why these are necessarily linked to value change. Um, these, become, these have increased severely, uh, uh, um, rather quite quickly and a lot, with the economic crisis and could be, to a great extent, the result of policies rather than long-standing values. Okay, so... In other words, if we look, if we nuance these indicators, we will see that there is maybe in a way a false dichotomy between what are economic factors and what are cultural factors. Okay? And the question really we should ask ourselves is where do these attitudes come from in the first place? Why are people, why do people have strong anti-immigration attitudes? Why do they have the particular authoritarian values that they do? If we look at the commonality between the Brexit supporter and and the far-right party supporters across Europe, we will see education is, for example, a common factor. Perhaps these attitudes have very... Um have strong socioeconomic background, for example. Why do people support the values that they do? Which brings me, firstly, to my argument about economic insecurity. And I'll show you this is something similar to what Eric showed you. So, yes, it is very true. Um, unemployment, which is one way of measuring economic discontent, unemployment and far-right party support doesn't, do not really correlate. Okay? This is true. So if we look at how far-right parties in Europe fared, uh, this is from the last uh, three European Parliament election, there is very little correlation between levels of unemployment. Spain has very high levels of unemployment and yet has no far-right party support. Does this, however, mean that the economy doesn't matter? In fact... If we nuance the economic argument and look at policies that actually mitigate the effect of, um, of economic malaise on citizens, we will see that this actually does matter. So my work with Tim Blanders, who's sitting just there, um, has shown what, what we did is we, we looked at labour market policies and the extent to which, in particular European countries, labour market 
institutions are able to mitigate the risks and costs of unemployment um, for citizens. And we found, so this tells you, this is from the last three European Parliament elections. This tells you that, yes, when there is economic malaise, when unemployment is high, but labour market policies, this, this particular slide is about benefits. When benefits are protective of citizens, then the likelihood of supporting the far right is smaller. Now, we have done the same, in fact, for both Western and Eastern European countries in national elections since 1991. And we find more or less the same thing, that when unemployment, even if unemployment is high, if the, labor market, if, if, if the welfare state basically protects citizens, if the welfare state is more protective, then the likelihood to support the far right will be smaller. Now, when I make this argument, a lot of times people say to me, well, um, but, you know, there are other indicators that show that it's not about the have-nots, it's not about, because it's obvious that it's not only the working classes or the unemployed that vote for the far right. And I need to make this disclaimer here and say that our argument is both for insider and outsider labour market groups. In other words, it's not only about the unemployed, it's about a broad range of social groups that witness the experience economic insecurity. So you could be in a fairly good you could have a fairly good job, you could be in a fairly good position, and yet this will affect you if in an economic crisis you fear that you might lose your wage or that your job, um, you will lose your job. So it's not only about economic insecurity, it's not only about the lower classes, but it can also affect a broad strata of the population. Which, in fact... I'll show you that in a bit. Which brings me to my second argument, to my political argument about state capacity and the social contract. So what I've argued so far is essentially the inability to mediate economic insecurity raises issues of governability. And this leads to the disenfranchisement of the middle classes. Now, in other words, these middle classes stop having trust. So this is not a value. Because of policies, they lose their trust in institutions and in the capacity of the state to deliver on its social contract obligations. How do we know this? Now, with Sofia Vasilopoulou, who's not here today, we have carried out a comparative work on Greece, Spain, and Portugal, asking ourselves why, given that these are three countries in southern Europe that have a very similar uh, background historically, why does Greece have a far right and yet Portugal and Spain which have both experienced economic crisis and high levels of immigration, they do not. Okay, and we actually, in our, in our comparison, we find that what is different about Greece and Spain, and Greece on the one hand and Spain and Portugal on the other, is that in fact there is a more trust in Greece, in, 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 sorry, in Spain and Portugal, in institutions, and the what we call good, good governance indicators, i.e. the belief of the citizens, these are perceptions, the belief of the citizens, thank you, the belief of citizens that the state can deliver on its basic obligations is higher in those countries. So we see with regards to govern, government effectiveness, with regards to regulatory quality, rule of law and control of corruption, not only does Greece fare much lower than the other two countries, but also it also during the crisis, it's this level declined. So where do these attitudes come from? To a large extent, they come from 
crisis management. They come from policies that failed to address not only the, the, the concerns of the have-nots, of the small working classes, but actually of the broader uh, sections of, um, of the population. So... And this is, uh, this is another, just, just again to show you average trust in institutions and satisfaction with democracy, you can again see that what is different between Greece, Spain and Portugal is that in Greece they are again far lower. Which brings me then again finally to my last argument. What about nationalism there? What, what role does that play? Well, nationalism, I argue is a rhetorical tool and a very successful strategy for these parties to mobilize support. And the way they do this, so, so we know that the far right, that nationalism is a defining feature of the far right. The way that it differs for far right groups um, and, and for other parties in that far right parties offer nationalist solutions to all social problems. So the justification for all their policies is based on nationalism. We should exclude uh, immigrants because they access the welfare state and only natives should, should, should access it. And the national preference should go for the economy, should go for social welfare, for uh, social services, for everything. This is how we know a far-right party, because it puts forward a nationalist solution. But what is new about these parties is the way they utilize nationalism. And Richard in, made a nice introduction to ethnic and civic nationalism, which is my argument as well. What they do is that they put forward more civic rather than ethnic justifications of national belonging. So you'll hear what these parties are saying, distancing themselves from the far-right and fascist parties of the past, is they try to justify their positions on voluntaristic criteria of belonging. They say, we don't exclude people because of their race. We don't exclude people because of their color. We exclude people because they're intolerant beliefs are contradictory to our liberal democratic values. And in doing so, what they, why they are new is that they're now able to permit the mainstream. They are blurring the distinction between what is far and what is, what is mainstream. So are they fascist? I think they are worse than fascist because they are more dangerous because a fascist party wouldn't be, all theories tell us, fascist parties cannot be successful today because of the lessons of the past. But now that the line is so blurred between what is far and what is mainstream, this makes these parties far more dangerous and far more attractive to a, a, a broader section of the population. Thank you. Okay, well, first, uh, thank the three speakers for keeping so elegantly to time, uh, with a bit of encouragement. And um, now, there's an opportunity for um, questions and comments. Um, we've had some heavily research-based analyses, which is great. And I, can, I just want to open up chair's privilege and all of that with... Um, that's a rather simplistic political question, which is, why is it so far, and there may be an easier explanation for this that I've not thought of, that centre-left parties have been less successful in doing something about all of this, if, assuming that's what they want to, than centre-right conservative parties? Why are centre-right parties more easily able to accommodate and manage if I'm correct, if that question is any basis in reality, in Europe at least. 
Um, well, I'm happy to. If anyone wants to jump in, just let me know. Um, I, I think my view on that would tend to be that the center-right parties are more comfortable uh, using the language of nationalism, and I think that the center-left parties are kind of torn between uh, elements in their ideological base, which are anti-nationalist or cosmopolitan in orientation. Uh, the realists, as in the Labour Party in Britain, who are trying to sort of say, hey, actually, we have to have uh, a message on, on nationalism or national identity. Um, so I think just philosophically, I think the center-right is probably more at ease. But that doesn't mean they're going to be successful, as we saw with the Tories uh, initially under Cameron, who, who tried to talk about, talk tough on immigration, and when they didn't deliver, they were, they were slaughtered at the, you know, they really paid for it. So it, it's a, not necessarily an easy strategy. Uh, yes, I, I would. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I would rather. I would agree with that generally. That, that um, on the other hand, uh, uh, right-wing parties, parties of the right, centre-right, are more comfortable. I think with the vocabulary of what we're talking about here, of, 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 of nationalism and ethnicity. But I'd, I'd add to that two things. First of all. Um, you know, there, there is a reaction in the world going on against the new nationalism, um, which comes not from the centre-left, but from the far-left. Um, so we have Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. Um, Mexico is really at the sharp end of Trumpism, more than any other country in the world. And, um, and they say, well, I, I would urge you to watch Mexican politics closely. Um, I'm sure you all do. But at the next presidential election, um, I would put money on uh, the success of um, Manuel, uh, Manuel López Obrador, who was the leader of the far left, the PRD in Mexico. He was a very successful mayor of Mexico City. He was the Ken Livingston, if you like, of Mexico, failed by a hair's breath to gain the presidency in 2006. Um, but he has made a comeback really on the back of um, Trumpism in the United States. So this is once again the politics of the right breeding its uh, the exact reaction um, on, on, on the left. And I think what these parties were able to do just as Corbyn and Momentum have managed to do here, um, is to rally um, a, a, a kind of values-based um, opposition to nationalism, um, which, you know, is, is, is very significant. Um, so I don't think you can discount the left. I mean, they have, they have a problem with, with, with nationalism um, in the sense that, you know, you can see that in the Labour Party completely split on immigration, on, on all the basics, you know, whether to oppose article, the triggering of Article 50. Uh, you know, this is splitting the party at the moment. So they, they have problems with all that, which right-wing parties don't have. But on the other hand, they have another political... Um, uh, they have other political values and other political, if you like, histories to draw back on um, with which to oppose the present rise of new nationalism. So I wouldn't rule uh, centre-left out... Um, they will may take on a, a, a more far-left tinge, but that will still provide a lot of opposition to the new nationalism. OK, thanks. And Daphne? I'll just quickly add, um, thank you, a, a party competition angle 
to this question as well. It, 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 I think it's got to, a lot to do as well with how these parties um, that were in government somehow um, have been discredited in the eyes of people. So I'm thinking of Greece, my, my country's example, where PASOK, the centre-right party, was part of the, of the, of the leading coalition that got the country into the first memorandum. Uh, by extension, the, the people got you know, very disillusioned uh, with this party and the centre-left completely imploded. It went from 43% of the vote to 5% of the vote. And um, I, you know, I think this is something that's very important. And secondly, another thing I would add is the, maybe the so-called crisis of the left as well. So whereas the right has a sort of maybe a common ground, they're all going towards, they know where they're going, they know how to, to try and attract people. Well, the left has sort of got an identity crisis of its own. They're not sure whether they should go mainstream left or far left. And they're discussing between them and they're divided while the right is more united, I'd say. Okay, great. Well, that was just to, to get it going. Now, anybody like to, um, yeah, the hand at the back, if you'd like to, I think, have a microphone? No, no, just shout. Go on, shout. You sound like a man, you look like a man with a decent voice. Go on. So like, so like I said, I, I'm an American and, and a horrified one at that, um, <laughs> based off the, the events the, the past week, and, and really months that we're all you know, very well aware of. Um, especially, notably, the reactive anger um, that we're seeing in America and in, in, in Britain. Um, that being said, from my perspective, um, it's generally rare that reactionary anger is turned into the political capital and further action we need get things back to being a bit more um, a bit more centrist, right? You know, the liberal left and the liberal elite, you know, we get out, we march these days, social media has made empathy and protest, uh, hashtag and Facebook status away. It's very easy to be involved these days. Um, but I think it's clear that those efforts are futile and they flame out quickly into the status quo except for the cases of Brexit and Trump, where politicians were able to turn that anger into proactive change, but at the expense of millions of people. Um, we heard a bit about cultural values as a solution. Again, just kind of bringing this a little bit more back to uh, a central centrist point of view. But clearly, you can't legislate cultural values. So whilst I can appreciate that you're all scholars, and not elected political officials. Um, my question is, in order to harmonize and beat back what I see as an American, as a white Christian nationalistic uprising, what would you suggest next of the American people and the American government? <laughs> well, I'm going, to give the, I'm going to give the panel, it's a great question, uh, well timed, I'm going to give the panel a chance to think about that by taking another couple of questions. And by the way, uh, John, I'm going to say, can I say who you are? John Denham, who was a member of Tony Blair. Uh, and Gordon Brown's government. So, uh, John, John Denning. Thank you. Uh, Sorry to <laughs> build you up like that. All your fault. I'm one of the people of that wing that Eric described as thinking Labour Party should probably engage in these issues. But I just wanted to make a, a couple of comments, if I may. I mean, tell you, you asked a question about the left. I mean, if you go 300 miles north, the government is dominated by a centrist or centre-left party, which you probably think, if you go to Wales, 
uh, Labour is losing some ground, but part of the ground is losing it to a nationalist party, and Labour in Wales tells a national story. Catalonia, I don't think, can be put on the far right, and Syriza's language, even to its peak, was not the language of international workers united. It was a nationalist language. So I wonder whether we get into an artificial problem by putting a ring around certain activities which we describe as being on the right and saying that's the issue, and whether we don't need to be understanding the rise of nationalism and the politics of people and place and nation. And I'll link that to the question I want to ask, is don't we have to discuss the identities that people have lost as well as the ones that they're responding to? And a very significant thing in Western Europe is that the, if, uh, you know, as a Labour MP in an industrial city, Southampton, People voted Labour not out of ideology or policy, because it's what you did if you were the sort of working class person who worked in factories, who had big trade unions, who had social institutions, who had recruitment patterns that meant your son, your brother, your nephew got a job in the same place. All of that is gone. So the socialising institutions that created the base for the mass social democratic parties have disappeared. But people's desire for identity is as strong as it ever was. And it seems to me to be perfectly natural that people turn to an identity of people, of nation and place. Now, if you then chuck into that mass migration as an unsustainable rate, and my final point is this, what we often regard as authoritarian or social conservative values are the values that were forged in big villages, in big industrial workplaces, where if you didn't stand together and keep things the way they were, somebody would do you over. Now, we now, the liberal left now says these are all terrible values, but they actually were the basis of solidarity in the Labour movement. So it's, it's a, I just throw that historical thing into the mix. Great. Okay, that's a helpful, corrective, and thought-provoking. A second one? One more? Should we take one more? Yep. Uh, go on. I suppose it's related in some way to the American gentleman's question, but it's a little bit simpler. Um, to steal um, from Anthony Beaver, I heard him talking last year, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, and a lot of the talk is now of you know, the echoes of the 1930s. Um, to what extent do you think that we're in a period that is, is in any way similar to that, or is it not similar, or is it completely different? Right, okay. Uh, Daphne, would you like to start this time? <laughs> sure. I'll start this time. I, I'll, I'll answer you first, and then I'll, I'll, have, a, I'll have a go at your question. Um, so, is it the same as the 1930s? I would say that the difference, and perhaps... The similarity at the same time is that the new nationalism is not a privilege, the privilege of the far right anymore. So is it similar? Knowing that these parties are not fascist because, you know, we do need to understand that fascism is a totalitarian regime or, or you know, group and we need to understand that what we have so far is not the same. However, what effect could it have if these values do permeate the mainstream and now we're, we're seeing nationalism and exclusionary nationalism uh, being a legitimate idea that everybody can uphold and, and, and support and vote for. So in a way it's, it's, it's problematic. Um, and the answer to your question, look, I don't know what the US government can do, but one thing that is recurring in my, um, in, in my research is education. And I think that the, the, the core of the problem is that people, we need to, 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 to prevent societies from voting for people who are going to adopt these policies. I come from a, from a country that has voted a, a neo-Nazi, a real neo-Nazi party that says that they are neo-Nazi in parliament. They're currently in parliament, but they're also, the same people are undergoing trial for murder. 
Okay, we need to stop, and if we ban them, it doesn't matter because they'll come back again and they'll call themselves the new dawn. What we need to do is, is create societies that take their vote far more seriously and have been educated as such. Uh, so I think education is the absolute key to preventing these phenomena from, from happening again. Is this a short-term solution? No. Richard. Um, yes, um, the 1930s, um, for the um, a Christmas edition of The Economist, where, um, uh, where, where, where us writers, we're allowed to go off-piste and write wacky articles about whatever um, we, we want. Um, I, I, this year, I, I chose to write about, um, write about Vienna. Um, it was called Vienna City of the Century. And the reason I wanted to write about Vienna was that I think Vienna explains uh, the entire course of 20th and 21st century um, Western history for the following reason. That, again, at the fin de siècle Vienna, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, you had the emergence of the quintessential, indeed, I would say, the precursor of modern globalized societies under the uh, watch, the gaze of um, the uh, Austria, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, Franz Franz II. And within that, there was this extraordinary um, coming together of, of, of different peoples, races, religions, etc., all guaranteed under the constitution of equal rights of citizenship, etc. And you know, famously, this is where uh, the, the, the Jews and nationalized Jews, you know, flourished, etc., Wittgenstein, the Afruzis, etc., etc. Um, and that, but that bred um, against it um, the reaction, um, which was um, uh, fascism, Hitlerism. Because, you know, the other most famous um, uh, Austrian uh, of, his, of, of that era was Hitler. And it was his observance of that sort of society in pre-First World War Vienna. Uh, it, it was, that was where he developed the ideas of what became national socialism. And again, I, I emphasize the word socialism, as many people have done. Because if you ask, you know, what, was, what is, you know, the max between nationalism and socialism, has it happened? That was it. That was what the party was called, the National Socialist Party, in reaction, as he saw it, against communism, but also against, you know, uh, Germanic parties, pan-Austrian parties, pan-Germanic parties, etc. So um, I think, you know, there's a lot of parallels, I think, uh, and I was inspired to write the party by looking at Brexit and Trump. You know, similar societies held within them um, the germs, or, you know, the, the, the causes of their own downfall, and the causes of an extreme reaction against those liberal societies. Because what struck me very much against, you know, the liberal Viennese elite, the all-conquering, all-clever people, is that they were entirely and remarkably um, dismissive and uninquisitive about why people hated their society so much and particularly hated against them. I mean, you have extraordinary intelligent professors, Otto Neurath, who, who is the father of modern graphics, of modern uh, um, empirical philosophy, etc., now virtually unheard of. I mean, he was a, a Jewish professor, a member of the Vienna Circle, which was a famous philosophical society at the time, and he was refused time and again uh, a professorship at the University of Vienna, professorship of philosophy. And um, he never really inquired why. He just, oh, I've been turned down again. Never mind, I'll go back to my studies. The reason why, of course, is that he was Jewish, and even then in the 1920s, Vienna, they were already uh, discriminating against academic promotion on grounds of 
being, being Jewish. And yet he twigged this in exile in 1945, just before he died in Oxford. Ah, how's that? Ah, I see. So they were against me because I was Jewish. Now, why should that be? Uh, extraordinary. Here we are. This was 10 years after they'd all been exiled from Vienna. So as I described at the beginning, there's, there's, I'm afraid there is a sleepwalking quality. And that comes back to Trump and America, that, you know, we, we are not aware of these things. Uh, and I always say to John, you know, we should get out, get out to South Africa. It was quite clear to me the Brexit vote was happening. Um, I, you know, went around, you know, the mill towns for North um, Burnley, Halifax, etc. And it was quite clear to me from there the cultural, the economic relationships between, you know, Brexit and, and, and the cultural and economic uh, makeups of those, of those cities. So Thanks, Tony. Um, boy, a lot to chew over there. Um, and, and I guess I'm going to sort of try and address John's uh, points and also the question about the U.S. Uh, even though I'm Canadian, I can kind of pull off the U.S. thing. Uh, but but um, so, so really, uh, I, I actually think it's not going to I, I actually first of all I think we aren't going to go to the 1930s number one and the other the other point I want to make is I do think we have to accept that people are wired differently and that some people enjoy diversity and change and that's what they want and other people prefer stability continuity and those are two types of people and I think David Goodhart who's writing a book on this which I know will be out in sort of February March but we, we have to recognize that somebody who does want continuity is not a racist, um, and we have to make room for them. They're not going to get everything they want, but I think we have to engage with them um, if we want to defang uh, this. And in the U.S. case, for example, um, we know that the sort of white non-Hispanic population is uh, dropping as a share of the, the U.S. has been doing so for some time. Now there are uh, only a minority of the infants born in the U.S. are non-Hispanic white. So we know that the white majority is going to become a white minority. And I think there has to be room for that group to express its ethnic interests. What we don't want is for them to impose their ethnic interest on the rest of the population as white nationalism. But I think it, we need to create a space for them to articulate their identity and their anxieties. And one of the things I think would be worth talking about is to say, well, actually, you know, um, there is a process, first of all, of assimilation going on, of intermarriage between Latinos and whites. Actually, things are maybe not going to be as dramatic as you think they are. And I think that's one message which might be worth saying. And I know in the British case, if people actually thought about the East Europeans that have arrived post-Second World War, they are basically you, you know, in a way. So this idea of assimilation, assimilation has to, I think, be, be talked about a little bit. And finally, this idea of national identity, as, as, as John said, it's not just a bad thing or a good thing. Uh, and it's many different... I think increasingly in studies of national identity, we're starting to see that national identity isn't something that's just handed down by the government. Everyone's on the same page. Uh, everyone sees the nation in a different way, depending if you're left-wing, right-wing, working class, white, non-white, etc. We've got to allow for that diversity, people connecting to the nation differently. So if someone actually is in Britain, wants to connect through their many generations, ancestors in Britain, there's nothing wrong with that as long as they don't insist that people who don't have that are not equally British. So I think we need to move towards a, uh, what I call a multivocal kind of national identity that allows that difference in how you identify with the nation. Can I just build on something that you've responded to, John Denham, about, which is that, I mean, I don't want to assume everybody in the room shares the same values here, but assume, just for a moment, often in rooms they do, that there's a sort of liberal set of values 
that are sort of better, morally better in some way, than those held by people who uh, are misguided to vote for populists. What I find difficult then to think through is how exactly, I mean, do they have to be convinced by rational argument they're wrong or accommodated? And I can't still quite see how liberals come to terms with this. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, is there a saying, yes, we accept you that you may have a view, but you're wrong, so we're going to try and convince you. <laughs> or we understand why you did that, yes, obviously. Or is it that we're going to try and we're going to try and compromise with you? Because I don't think many liberals, I don't think on many issues I personally would like to compromise on things I believe. Now uh, how do we, how, so do we compromise or do we just stay, stick our ground and hope that people come our way by arguing with them? Well, I think we should, there should be, there has to be some accommodation. Ah, I don't think it can just well, that be, yeah, yeah, that's what, but anyway, I, I well, like no. the other, yeah, well. I mean, I don't, know what I, I don't think it's much, I think that for primary that you can begin with acknowledging, um, acknowledging what they feel and the fact that their feelings may be valid. I think that goes a long way. I think, you know, the basic problem with this is that a lot of people, you know, your so-called liberal, don't even acknowledge that these people might have, you know, nationally speaking, patriotically, which, which are valid, which are rooted in place, time, history, family, etc., etc. Uh, I think the liberals are often far too dismissive of these things. I mean, you know, Theresa May, unfortunately, has been able to make hay with this, you know, that, you know, the rootless people who don't have a sense of place and time, that's what conservatives are. That's exactly what she's getting at, and that's the secret of her, you know, appeal. I, I'm sh uh, fortunately probably a lot of you don't have to read the Daily Mail. I do, as a journalist, <laughs> to to understand that. But you know, they'll go on for page and page and page exactly about that, uh, about you know, because they they the Daily Mail, the secret they think they have is that they speak for exactly those ideas. And I think you could go a long way to acknowledging that and say, right, okay, well let's talk about this. We acknowledge that you know that you have these things that you feel that way. We can see why you might feel that way. Let's talk about it. And I think that would be an excellent start. Okay, Do you want to that See, I think values are malleable, and and, and mm. I think that mm. policies, to a great extent, exacerbate these. And you know, we're talking as if these values exist, and then the, the political actors in the media and everybody else expresses them. But what if it's the other way around? What if they feed them? And what if they feed off each other? So I I, I, I don't you know I I'm not so sure that it's a it's very much a, a clear cut picture. Okay, right, uh, <coughs> chat there, yeah. Yes, okay. Post truth. <laughs> and the Remain campaign, for, from my point of view, hit out the public like Mike Tyson with facts and figures, why Brexit would be bad, why people would be worse off, why the economy would be worse off. The skill Brexit prevailed because of post truth. Because Nigel Farage, for example, didn't have to have any logic or any facts behind his arguments, he simply repeated them enough times so that he was hard to believe. So I. My question is, how can we prevent post-truth from becoming a major political factor of war? If it already is, is that the shaping of a new political agenda, basically utilising people's emotions rather than facts and things? Would you concede for a moment, I'm going to sound as if I'm defending <laughs> the entire other side here again, but that, I mean, if you were on, if you were on the 
the other side, wouldn't you say, well, um, George Osborne said the economy was going to the dogs immediately if we left the EU, and it hasn't, and the other side said it wouldn't, and it hasn't. So who was wrong? Mm. I mean, I don't. Sorry, I'm not having a go at you. The, sorry, it's not the role of the chair to have a go at the questioner. But you see the point. See the point I'm making. Uh, that in that even post truth is relative. Anyway, sorry. Do you want, uh, yes. do you want to have a go at that? Or am no, I I'll, just being say, I'll say something. Quick, or did you? Okay, I'll just be quick on that. But I, again, I do think uh, there are some things such as whether Obama is a Muslim or there's climate change where it's very clear what is truth and what isn't. But I think, as Tony says, there are some of these issues. I mean, one of the interesting ones, which you know, I've just got a blog post on, is this question of what is racism. Um, and I think this is quite important because if you look at uh, American voters, uh, Clinton supporters will say the wall is racist. You know, 80% of them. And about 4% of Trump supporters will. Um, I, I think I think it's very important to distinguish between something like the wall, which I think you can be not racist and support, and the Muslim ban, which is impossible to support without being racist. I think we need to, to make some of those distinctions. I think it's very important to do that. So I, I just think a lot of this is there are things that are clearly post-truth, like Obama being Muslim, uh, but there are also some things which are kind of gray. So I mean, do you want to come back? I mean, on the post-truth, what what um, is it the the spreading of actual <coughs> fake news, really completely fake stuff. That's the thing that's really causing trouble here, isn't it? And not only, it's more playing the emotional agenda rather than relying on facts and figures. The echo chamber Trump problem. Specifically, it doesn't matter whether something he said was true or not. And actually, his not publicist, but one of his advisors, Kedan Conway, used the term alternative facts. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. What the whole point of that is they just say something and for them they repeat it enough times they, they almost start believing it and then the public follows from that yeah. that I mean, was the whole politics of Trump he simply repeated something over and over again Mexico is bad, Mexico is bad and then if people don't read the actual facts that support it they start believing the statement as it was true without mm. any merit because an alternative fact is the end of well, journalism as we know it isn't it? It's not going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Certainly, the Economist, <laughs> the better end of journalism. Um, yes, just quickly. I mean, two points. I mean, I, I do agree with Teddy Bear on, on post-truth. I, I would say don't use post-truth as an excuse for what's happened. I think far too often this term, which I wish had never been invented, um, is used. Um, it's part of this not acknowledging the other side. Well, I, I often feel that post-truth is used by liberals um, to damn views that they don't like. I mean, you say, you know, it's all about emotions, which doesn't agree with fact. Politics is emotions. Politics, you know, there is an emotional register to politics which you, which you ignore at your peril, which we have ignored at your peril. I mean, the whole thing about, you know, conservatism in this country, you know, it, 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 it is all about, you know, if you look, go to Edmund Burke, all the founders of it, of, of conservatism, that's all they talk about and Coleridge, what they're trying to do is, is express an emotion of what it is to be English or what it is to be, you know, belong to the aristocratic settlement or to be with the land, etc., and this all percolates 
percolates up into a, into a movement. So, you know, emotions is important. It's not post-truth or not truth. You know, these are elements of, of politics, uh, which, you know, I, I would say liberals have ignored, and now it's come back and smacked them in the face. Um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's another register, which is alternative facts. Um, again, let's just, it's their lies. Um, you know, it's their lies. And, you know, politicians have always used lies to get things. So I would, I would recalibrate. You know, I think there's emotion in politics, um, and I think there's sort of feelings that you, have to, that you have to acknowledge and talk about, and there are lies. And they're two different things, and that's, and that's that. <coughs> And incidentally, on lies, of course, you know, lies uh, go back to Hitler. I mean, that was all Nazi propaganda was about. It was all about lies. And, of course, the, exact, the, the lesson of 1930s fashion is the bigger the lie, the more often you say it, uh, the more people will believe it. Okay. Um, so I'll repeat myself first. Education, post-truth, is very linked to that. Why do you know that these are lies? Because you are more educated people can filter this, which is, again, why I'll say education is really important. But coming back to Eric's point as well, I'll say, you know, when I was watching the, the, the referendum debate, uh, Remain versus League, and someone came out on television and they were having this discussion over this program, and they said, one woman was very pro-League, and, and she just said, why, tell me why is it racist to talk about immigration? And I do think there is a problem there, because I, I do think that the Remain campaign failed to explain precisely why it is or it isn't racist to talk about immigration. And that is very, very important. And, and, and it brings me back to my argument. One thing these groups and these parties are able to do is to actually tell the people you are not racist if you're talking about immigration. You are not excluding people because you are racist. You're excluding them because they pose, they pose a pressure onto your social services and your welfare state and all these sort of common economic goods. And they're successful in doing so for uh, a variety of reasons. So I do think whatever you call them, the experts, the liberals, however you want to call them, if they don't come up with an answer to why is it racist to talk about immigration or, or, or not, then, then, then this is a problem. And this is why it remain lost to me. Okay. Yes, here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Atui from Mexico. Oh, you used to be something from Mexico in the audience. Very good. Excellent. So yeah, basically we are completely freaked out of what is but also, I think that this, I, I am an optimistic person, so I will always see it as an opportunity. So basically now in Mexican politics and in news all over the place, what you're seeing is you, we are uniting to a, common, to a common enemy. And this will have major implications if it's done right on trade and on the economy of Mexico could, could change. So basically, my question is first, what is the, the options of the left? Like, how should this left became an option, for example, in Mexico 2018, next election? And the other thing, the repercussion of the effect of Trump in Latin America. Like, could you comment on that? Can I ask you again, and ask yeah. you a question, has the Donald Trump's activities, statements, and behaviors um, led to a rise in patriotic feeling in Mexico? Yeah, yeah. Like there's even like boycotts of not buying right, okay. which mm. I don't think it's the right way, but yeah, yeah. It, it has happened. 
I spent many years living in Mexico City. So I uh, there's a famous phrase about um, Mexico. Uh, one of the 19th century presidents said, uh, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. Uh, which, 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 um, which, which you'll know, which, which sums up the Mexico, the famous Mexico dilemma. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it's, it is absolutely, you know, terrible. Uh, and uh, at about 15 years ago, when the, the immigration debate, Mexican immigration in the, in the United States was being conducted in a much more um, even-handed tone, some people, uh, I think Hollywood produced a wonderful film called Undias in Mexicanos. Have you seen that? A Day Without Mexicans, which was very funny. And it was they, they, they tried to imagine California for a day with all Mexican labor withdrawn. So, you know, try and imagine a California without gardeners, uh, teachers, taxi drivers, bus drivers, and everything else. And, of course, the place comes to a complete standstill and stops. And I think that's for always the most persuasive argument for against the sort of Trumpism we have today. Um, it's, 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 it's mostly economic that, you know, it, it's, it's madness. And as, as American business leaders have already told Trump, this is self-immolation. This is, this is you know... This is economic suicide uh, trying to trying to do this because basically what you're doing is you're trying to restrict you know the labour pool that has kept a lot of American industry growing um, through you know very very good economic times um, by you know building these walls and and you know basically encouraging all Mexicans to go back and of course it's absolutely awful the stuff you know he says well they're all rapists and you know bank robbers etc etc and that is that is so awful and you might have seen circular on Facebook you know very similar to uh, somebody posted the um, Nazi posters about Jews in 1936 where they have pictures of these people this one's a criminal, this one's a robber these are immigrants, very very similar to what, <coughs> how he's characterising Mexicans um, today so I hope there'll be a, I mean there is a sort of enormous backlash but you know, and uh, you know, just as we've we've we saw the, the Colombian peace deal, the end of the FARC, which people and the death of Castro, we thought, oh, well, that's the end of the far left in 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 Latin America. We turn over a new leaf at every country's now democratic centrist. Well, now we have Trump, and that's going to provoke an enormous reaction in Latin America. And as they say, it might even you know rise to the people like AMLO. So you know, history revolves again. You know, this will produce. A own reaction, so yeah. <clears throat> Briefly, and I'll come to you because I'm going to take a couple more questions quickly. Oh, no, I'll just go ahead. All right. Okay, let's take, uh, I'll take a, a, hand, a clutch of right, a number of questions. So, one, two, three, four, five. Right, very quickly. Uh, if I may, uh, go on and ask oh. what you just said now. Um, I was, I did, oh, sorry, I don't know if that was. No, no, right, right, go um, with my fault. Um, <coughs> There seems to be a tension between what some of you were saying. Um, I think that there was sort of, it was implicitly acknowledged and then we made the discussion in terms of different direction, which is between um, trying to acknowledge uh, the way that many people feel, even if it makes us uncomfortable, and the, the process of legitimizing or normalizing that sort of conversation. And I, and I, and I think the, this last remark that was just made, I apologize, I don't know your names. Um, the, the last comment I was just making was, was interesting. I wonder if there's a distinction between the kind of lang the language that Trump uses, or maybe these far right um, 
agents, for lack of a better word. And, um, and an honest discussion, a challenging discussion with people about things that they feel strongly about. If, if there's one that's, a, if we could characterize a healthy discussion of these things from an unhealthy discussion, then how would we navigate that? Okay, yeah, get the point, that's good. Uh, and then you were waiting, yeah. So my question is more around what I saw as the elephant in the room, and the gentleman earlier mentioned another one, but um, what I think is the big absent from what we've discussed today is the European Union. And I'd like to understand what your thoughts are around uh, its perceived and factual failures in some metrics, economically, immigration-wise, and it concerns immigration from non countries that are outside of Europe, and how that affects the rise of these nationalist parties, because that is probably, in my, I mean, that's the sense I get, it's probably the major arguments shared by all these parties, as opposed to the ethnic, or even the immigration argument, it's almost a secondary one, I would say. Um, so okay, very good. And then there was, yes, uh, and next to you. Yeah. So, um, I think it was the historian Hofstadter who said in the 50s that populist third parties were like bees, and once they stung, they kind of died. Um, so my question now is, do you think that these populist parties, nationalist parties that we've seen rise in Europe and now in North America, how they have uh, entered the political normality, what do you think their impact has been on, for example, conservative parties? Um, uh, or do you, th do you think they are going to survive as parties, or do you think their impact on uh, the, the political environment is going to be greater? For example, I guess UKIP kind of um, disappeared now from, uh, from our debates here, but they've had a massive impact on, on May, for example. Or even in France, uh, you see um, the impact of, of the pen on, on Fillon, for example. Or even in the Netherlands. With Okay, and there was a question. Uh, I'll right, take that one then. In your hand, yes, and that one. Stop yeah. then. The question is just around, you know, we've heard a couple of times tonight that there has not been a great correlation between sort of uh, the economy and uh, the lives of populist parties. Um, but a lot of the metrics that I saw anyway tonight were around sort of unemployment, on general income. I didn't hear anything around income disparity and sort of the growing wealth divide. That seems to me has actually driven a number of different sentiments um, and driven people really towards some of these parties as well. I just didn't know if anyone can comment a little bit on that. Okay, to which I think I would also have added, I mean, there was clearly a sense, at least in the Brexit vote, that areas that had declined economically somehow was linked to uh, Brexit voting uh, for Leave. Yep. Um, you mentioned that, that populist, populism on the right has sort of defeated populism on the left, but I'm not so sure that populism on the left has really been in the mix a lot in the last 20 years, and I was wondering if you think it's more of a cyclical thing. For example, I'm from Michigan, in the U.S. as well, and I know people that have voted for Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama twice, and now Donald Trump, and they do it out of their perceived economic self-interest. And a lot of these people are not progressive by any means. They are, a lot of them are frankly racist, but they voted for Barack Obama twice because they, they viewed it in their, their self-interest. And there's been a lot of erosion in that state and institutions, you know, by like the unions and, and 
things like that. So it just seems to be more of a backlash. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, right. <laughs> we'll overrun, maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll it's okay. leave this by saying I'm, I would count myself as a liberal elite. But <laughs> considering we're all sitting in a room of liberal elites talking about basically how we can tell people on the right, people populists, that they're wrong, do you not think we're part of the problem? <laughs> yes, well, I, won't, I won't take a, a, a show of hands as to people in the room who don't think we're liberal. Anyway, uh, now, there's five, six, six good points there. Uh, I don't want everybody to answer every, all of them. Um, let me start with Daphne. You go, why don't you have your yeah. cho- cho- choice of the questions? Excellent. I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at your, party, at your uh, impact of our party's question. Um, so, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that their, their impact on the policies of other parties are actually, is actually far greater than the electoral support that they're gaining in some, in some countries, for example. So I'm giving a talk on this on, on the Golden Dawn tomorrow, as you have seen back, and uh, based on, some, on, on a big project that, that we did that measured the extent to which Golden Dawn policies have impacted the salience and the particular policy positions of other parties in the Greek system. And we did find that, in fact, um, nationalism has risen in the rhetoric of political parties across the board. And again, you can see it, you can see it here, you, you said it yourself, in the way that these ideas are now mainstream. It doesn't really matter if UKIP supports them, because now they're mainstream and the Conservative Party supports them, and the Labour Party is also very anti-immigration these days. So they're, they're spreading, and, and, and that is the problem. And, and it's far more important than if they get 6% or 7% or 8%, is that they are driving party competition to their benefit, I think. Um, and there was, your question was about the money. Uh, <laughs> the fact that we've just sat here talking about basically how we can educate or... Uh, is it, is, are we part of the are, bubble? Are liberal elite are so, so self-referring that they can't even escape for a minute to, com- to think about the well, people on the other side? Well, I've quite a few lead voters, and a lot, a lot of the views that we got across when we did this was that uh, essentially they, want the, they, they don't want to hear from Westminster. As soon as George Osborne got up and told them there's going to be a recession, he's going to need an emergency budget, they turned up, they didn't care how much it cost um, I think we'll, we'll take that as a as a comment. <laughs> so, yeah, take it as a comment because I think you know I don't think many people in I can't speak for everybody. And I think there's a you know, a sense that um, those who you know I mean that 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 is a risk of a culture war in all of this, which I don't think we've worked through at all yet. We do need to work it through before it becomes a culture war. Let's put it that way around, mm. Richard. Um, I'll take the first and, th- first and third question. The first one is about, you know, the, 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 the language. Can we develop a language to talk about these things? I mean, I agree with Trevor Phillips and David Goodhart, who, who, who say that, but, you know, the reason uh, you know, we, we find it so difficult to talk about immigration, you referred to all the, you know, quite legitimately, you know, the resentment <coughs> of Remain voters in the referendum that, you know, if we, 
they wanted to talk about immigration, they were instantly labelled racist. There seemed to be, you know, uh, nothing between, you know, small skirmishing and nuclear war on this issue. Um, uh, in Britain, it goes back to it's Enoch Powell's fault, um, I strongly believe, that because he, the way he expressed this all in 1968 with the Rivers of Blood speech, um, you know, pressing the nuclear button there early on, uh, put this whole issue off bounds for the political classes for generations, indeed, until today. So what we have to do now, actively, is to revisit uh, that and sort of develop for the first time ways in which we can talk about these issues without having to be accused of instantly being a racist or a nationalist or etc. We have to find the dialogue, we have to find the words and the language, the grammar to discuss this in a, in a rational, civilised um, uh, um, uh, way which other countries have, have learned to do this and we're only just beginning to do it and I think you saw the dangers of not being able to do that precisely in the Brexit debate where you know the Remainers had no language to discuss immigration plainly you know when that bombshell right net migration thing you know, three weeks in the campaign, you were sung. I was, a, I was on the streets, you know, campaigning for Remain, and, and, and that's good because, you know, we'd never learned, and all Osborne could do was bomb out about these ridiculous treasury forecasts, which everybody knew were indeed post-truth and <laughs> completely spurious. And on the last part, I would like to take up the, the, the are we part of the problem? I mean, you know, uh, this is, we, we've indulged in some reflection of the economists, you know, were we part of the problem? Um, yeah, I think we probably were, but as I've argued strongly here today, I hope that, you know, before you can, uh, it's not about educating people, it's, I think we, before that you have to acknowledge you have to listen to what they're saying. You have to acknowledge that maybe people in Hull, Sandal or Newcastle do have reasons to vote uh, to remain. They may have reasons to resent the political leader and they probably do have reasons why they, they leave the EU. And it's not, it's not enough just saying, well, look, you've got the Nissan car factory next door. You know, they export all their cars to Europe. So, you know, so therefore you've got to vote for the EU. Politics doesn't work this way. As I've argued, it's a much richer affair. It's about culture, place, values, history, labour movements, etc. And, you know, it's, it's uh, Treasury forecasts, I'm afraid, um, don't comprehend that. Eric? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll sort of pick up a, a little bit on this, this very interesting question about the conversation and, and what Richard and Daphne had said around this, because I actually think what's interesting is that the sort of racism taboo, in a way, kept the lid on sort of people's disquiet, or at least the conservative white population that's now voting populist. So for a while, while that consensus was total, then that was a stable situation. But once the lid comes off and the anti-racism taboo starts to crack, I think you then get, and I don't think we can go back to that situation. So I think in a way I'd agree with Richard. Now that it's cracked, we can't put the genie back in the bottle, and we're going to have to discuss this more openly. And one of the interesting pieces I really keep referring to is Shadi Hamid, who's a Muslim-American who wrote in the Washington Post, and said we have to distinguish between race, racial self-interest and racism. So if you are a white American who's a high identifier with your ethnic group, 
immigration is probably going to mean you're going to get smaller as a share of the total. That doesn't mean it shouldn't happen, but it means it's understandable that somebody who is, say, a high-identifying white American might be more opposed to immigration than, say, a high-identifying Latino. That's not to say that person's racist. They're just racially self-interested. That's maybe a clannish thing, a narrow-minded thing, but it's actually not the same as saying, I hate Mexicans, like Donald Trump did. So I I think that's an important distinction. And so I think we do have to start talking a little bit about these different ethnic self-interests. Come to an accommodation. No one's going to get everything they want. But it's not, shouldn't be racist for, say, a white person to to be able to say that. Um, So I think that's the kind of direction we need to move. And hopefully that'll take some of the sting out of some of the sort of anti-elite, anti... And I I also think, by the way, it's not just that they dislike experts and elites. Certain experts and elites they love, right? So, you know, Nigel Farage is an elite and Donald Trump's an elite, but it's an elite that sort of speaks to them. So I don't think it's, it's, it's an elite thing. I think it's much more about these resentments and anxieties of the sort of white majority. Hence my new book. (laughs) <laughs> we must finish it's just after half past eight um, the concept of the elephant in the room was mentioned a couple of times this evening and there's no question that this particular topic encourages a, an elephant rich room wherever it is discussed uh, there are large numbers of issues that are buried I think both in the Brexit vote and in the Trump vote which in a sense, however much many people may have wished they didn't turn out as they did, are now of massive interest to political scientists, journalists, economists, politicians and others because they did tell us something about the United States, the United Kingdom and probably other places soon to come um, that we didn't fully realise. And in the same way that I think nobody spotted 2008 coming and the banking crisis and all that, nobody spotted this coming either. That isn't an argument against experts, of course. It's an argument for better experts. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why places like this and debates like this are such fun. So um, we do need a new grammar of politics Richard's point at the end and I think we also to take the Anthony Beaver point, the question I made you know, the, the rhyme of the past is something, trying to disentangle what is the rhyme of the past from a warning and a leading indicator is definitely something we all need to bear in mind at every point anyway, what I'd say is I'd like to thank uh, Daphne, Richard and Eric for their excellent fact-filled and from my point of view learning experience (laughs) presentations thank all of you for questions and for uh, coming into the evening and um, well you can grab the speakers on the way out if you want to join if you wish buy Eric's book when it's out everybody else's book already Richard's book, Daphne's (laughs) books thank you very much, good night (laughs) 